So <clears throat> last night, Andrea spoke beautifully about the wisdom aspect of the path. How there is this radical reorientation, a radical shift in perspective that allows us to begin to shift our view and our intention, which then impacts all of the activities of body, speech, and mind, our behavior, and which is then deepened as we engage in meditative practice, as we're doing here together. Tonight, I'm going to talk about uh, another aspect of the path, but first to invite you to consider that the uh, Eightfold Path is not so much a path of a series of steps, like stepping stones, that are linear and go from A to B to C, but rather to imagine that the path is more like a circle. In fact, sometimes the image that's used is the image of a wheel. Last night you heard about the wheel of samsara, right? the wheel out of round, which is one of the definitions of dukkha. So you might imagine that the path is a perfectly round wheel, (laughs) and that each of the eight steps of the path is what allows the fullness, the roundness of the wheel. So it's sometimes described as a wheel with, you know, eight spokes. And at the center, nothing. Space. Emptiness. So it's a beautiful way of considering to hold this. And our path, this path that we are walking and sitting, breathing together, it is fundamentally a wisdom path. This is part of the definition of the word vipassana, or insight, meditation. That the aim of the path itself is for us to begin, as is happening here, to slow down a little bit, to simplify, and to pay attention, to begin to notice and have various moments of aha, of insight. Last night, Andrea spoke about the three different levels, how I think of it sometimes, of insight. A level of insight that comes from hearing, from hearing a teaching. could also come from seeing. If you're reading a book, it's that level of insight, kind of a cognitive level. But there's also a level of insight that comes from your own reflection, from taking those teachings from the outside in to yourself and reflecting and beginning to metabolize and consider, how is this true for me, in my life, in my circumstances? And finally, the level of insight that comes through meditation itself. There's a kind of parallel process that describes this in the story of the Buddha. It's said that when the Buddha sat down on the night of his awakening, 
under the bow tree and basically said, I'm not getting up. I'm not getting up until I understand. I'm not getting up until I understand suffering and the end of suffering. That was his vow. And it's described and sometimes depicted as what's called three watches of the night. So it's, it's a way of talking about how the Buddha himself had three layers or levels of insight that unfolded as he sat. And the first kind of insight that he had was insight, we might describe it as insight into his own personal history. He saw with his wisdom eye as it began to open all of his past lifetimes. And he saw himself being born and reborn again and again. And he began to see what's often referred to as the pattern of karma, the connection between what happened in one life and what caused something to happen in the next life. You don't have to believe in many lives if you, if you don't want to have this be useful because you could consider that, well, how many lives did you have today? <laughs> right? How many moments were there that were wonderful and then difficult and then boring and then sleepy and then... And as you begin to pay attention to slow down, you begin to have personal insight. You begin to see into. I heard it today expressed over and over in the interviews. You begin to have some insight into your own patterns, your own habits. This is similar to the Buddha's first kind of layer of insight. Now in the second watch of the night, it's said that the Buddha now, is again his wisdom eye opened further, but now he saw not only his own many, many lives of being born and dying, but he saw the same pattern for all beings. Impressive, huh? So this you could understand as a way of saying that not only did the Buddha have insight into his own personal experience and patterns, but he began to see also at a universal level what's true for all of us as human beings. And you too may begin to have glimpses of universal truth, of insight. You may begin to notice, for example, that as you've gone through many births and deaths through the course of today, that where did it go? This is beginning to see the truth of impermanence as an example. Or you may start to see the truth of dukkha, the truth of your own reactivity and how that works. These are examples of how you begin to see truth that's not just true for you in your personal history, but is also true for all beings. Finally, the third watch of the night, the Buddha had his kind of breakthrough insight which is described as the teaching of Pratika Samupada. He saw how a moment unfolds. He saw not just over history, over time, his own patterns of karma, of birth and death, of suffering. And he didn't just see that for all beings. He saw how it happens in a moment. 
Because of this, that occurs. Because of that, this unfolds. He began to see the pattern as a direct experience. And you too may begin as the mind begins to settle, as the heart begins to open. You too may be able to catch a moment. Andrea described this beautifully last night in her own noticing of a moment of, in that case, anger arising, right? And when you can see that clearly, there's an opportunity to have the mindfulness be genuinely transformational. It can completely turn the situation in a new way. So all of that is a backdrop to speak about something a little bit different. Uh, It's actually the same, but from a different angle. And in the same way that I said we can see the path as a linear set of steps, or we can understand the path as a more more of a kind of circle. Um, what I'd like to talk about tonight is not so much the what of what we see, the what of the insight, but more the how. The how it is that we receive what we receive, whatever comes. And there's a traditional way of talking about this as um, two wings of a bird. So it's said that in order to fly, in order to be free, that we need to cultivate both a wing of wisdom, a wing of clear seeing, a wing of insight in this very detailed way that I just described, deeper and deeper layers of insight into things as they are, seeing that clearly. That's one wing of the bird. The other wing is the wing of compassion. It's the wing of how it is that we receive our experience, with what tone, with what attitude, with what level of receptivity and openness, or not. Sometimes it's said that if we cultivate too much wisdom without enough compassion, that we can have very clear seeing, but it's too sharp. You may, um, you may, some of you may have been on the receiving end of feedback like that maybe once in your life. Somebody said something that was really true, but ouch, because it was so sharp and it wasn't said in a kind way that made it easier to receive. Maybe you've been someone who's given that kind of feedback. You may have been on either side of that equation. On the other side, it's said that you may, uh, if you develop Uh, the compassion wing, without enough wisdom, you end up with what uh, the Tibetan teacher Pema Chodron calls idiot compassion. I think of idiot compassion as being nice or trying to be nice, maybe. So you're running around trying really hard to be nice, but it doesn't have any discernment. It doesn't have any wisdom in it. And many of us know this experience as burnout. So we're running around trying, trying, trying to be nice, to be kind, to take care of, and we get so tired that we can barely stand up. 
So that's too much compassion, not enough wisdom. So the idea is that we want to balance these two aspects. And as the metaphor suggests, there's really only one bird, <laughs> right? There aren't, they're really both sort of flip sides of the same coin, wisdom and compassion. And in, uh, in uh, Chinese character for um, uh, heart, the word heart, it actually includes both the mind and the heart. So in English, we tend to think of these as separate functions, but actually they are one thing. And yet sometimes useful to tease out a little bit these different aspects of the, of the practice. So I was thinking about how to talk about this how part, which in some ways is a bit subtler than the what. It's easier to point to something in particular than it is to point at the tone with which we're going to engage with it. And so as I was reflecting, I thought, well, rather than offering a kind of linear, didactic teaching, perhaps better to share with you some stories, some poems, and to invite you to let your um, heart respond, to notice what's evoked in you as you listen, rather than trying to understand. So it's a different kind of understanding, and uh, one that is in some ways subtler, but certainly as, as useful or powerful. So I was going to start somewhere else, but I want to start instead with uh, a poem. It sort of sums up the whole teaching. It's a poem called Spring, and it's by Mary Oliver. She says, somewhere a black bear has just risen from sleep. (laughs) The black bear is waking up. Somewhere a black bear has just risen from sleep and is staring down the mountain. All night, in the brisk and shallow restlessness of early spring, I think of her, her black fists flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire touching the grass, the cold water. There is only one question. There is only one question. How to love this world? I think of her rising like a black and leafy ledge to sharpen her claws against the silence of the trees. Whatever else my life is, with its poems and its music and its glass cities, it is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain, breathing and tasting All day, I think of her, her white teeth, her wordlessness, 
her perfect love. sort of says it all. So as we wake up, this is a beautiful description of what it is we wake up to. Recently, I was asked to um, write something. Please write 10 descriptions of you know, how to practice in the world. It was a challenge I was given. And so I drafted my 10-point treatise and I sent it off. And I got back uh, the copy from the editor who said, this is good, but it's much too long. You have over a 1,000 words here and you only get 250. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. Whoa. And I I watched a little bit of um, reactivity in my mind. This is stupid. This is impossible. This is... You're asking me to turn the Dharma into something, you know, drivelly and silly and I can't do it and I watch my mind spin. You may have watched your mind spin in various, your version of this today. And then I went and met with a friend who is a writer and a poet and he um, challenged me further. And he told me this story about his own meeting uh, and conversation with the poet uh, Jane Hirschfeld, who is a long-time Buddhist practitioner. And apparently in their conversation, he said to her, please describe the Dharma to me in 10 words or less. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I got 10 bullet points. You know, he, she, he only gave her 10 words. And here's what she said. Without missing a beat, apparently, she just came right out with it. She said, everything is connected. Everything changes. Pay attention. Mm -hmm. Everything is connected. Everything changes. Pay attention. Seven words. She got it in seven (laughs) words. I was so impressed. It was very inspiring to me to then try to find how pith, right? How to the point can we be? So our practice, the heart of our practice, is called pay attention. That's what mindfulness is. And as we go through these days, Andrea and I are giving instruction to help you focus your attention in some way. And we start with the breath and the body as a way to begin to settle the mind. But as the instructions this morning described, we don't just stop there. Actually, mindfulness ultimately is mindfulness of everything. And as we start to pay attention to the breath, the body, to our feelings, to our own reactivity, etc., we start to see. We see that, as I described earlier, everything changes. This is wisdom. This is the truth. And if we continue... As our mindfulness becomes more and more subtle and refined, we may also begin to see, oh, everything is connected. But for me, that is a, it's a subtler truth, right? Because it's not so much something that we see or understand with our eye or our mind. It's something that we feel with our heart. 
20 years ago, I came here to this very room, to Jokoji, to sit, Sashin. I was a Zen student at the time, and I came here to sit with uh, Kobinchino Roshi, who is a photograph of him on the wall in the entryway and also on the right side of the altar. And I came in large part because of the uh, pith instruction that he had given me, which touched something very deeply in me and caused me to really kind of want to follow him. And actually, initially, before I came here, I had, I had followed him out to, he had a place in, uh, outside Taos in New Mexico. And I went all the way there, and he wasn't there. <laughs> but I didn't give up. I came later and sat with him here. And the story that caused me to come and want to sit with him was um, at the very, very beginning of my early practice. I was, uh, had started sitting at San Francisco Zen Center. And I was told that there was this uh, new, this uh, uh, Japanese teacher, you know, kind of the real thing. And he was coming to Zen Center, and I should come and hear him. And his name was uh, Kobinchino Roshi. And I thought that they said Cappuccino Roshi. So I was like, oh, we're going to go see Cappuccino Roshi. That was what I had in my mind. And I went and I heard him give a, this beautiful Dharma talk in the, in the hall. And afterwards, there were the people who went to the talk gathered in the back of the dining room for tea and questions. And... Um, I was new enough that I uh, was still, I asked questions. Like other people, I didn't realize, like, if you were really a good Dharma student, you didn't really ask questions, you just kind of looked good, you know, (laughs) sitting quietly. But I was too new to know that that was the, you know, the kind of form for the locals. So he said, does anybody have any questions? And my hand shot up, and I said, "Um, what is the Dharma? And everybody laughed. Every, you know, all the sort of more senior students laughed. And, and I said, no, I, really, I'm new. <laughs> I don't know. It was just this word that I had kept hearing, you know, banty, bantered about. And um, so I didn't know that it was such a profound question. I just wanted kind of a, like a dictionary definition. Right? But that wasn't Coben's style. And so... Uh, His first response was he paused and he said, well, I don't know. (laughs) That was probably enough. That was the best answer. But then he paused and he sat for a little bit. And then he looked down at the table in front of him where there was a beautiful setup of uh, tea. There was a teapot and a cup and some little cookies, you know, all laid out in beautiful elegance for him. And he leaned over, and he picked up the teapot, and he held it up. And he said, he looked at me, and he said, the Dharma is what holds this teapot together. Get it? I had no idea what he was talking about. None. But what happened was that something was touched in me. 
I felt that he was pointing to something that I didn't understand, but I could feel. And actually, I could feel it as a kind of longing, as a kind of whatever it was that he was pointing to, I knew I wanted to understand more. And that led me ultimately to follow him to New Mexico and then here to sit. So last night, Andrea spoke you know, with very beautiful clarity about uh, dukkha as the reactivity of the mind, of the mind that uh, when touched by something pleasant responds with wanting, with greed, and the mind that when touched, impacted by something unpleasant, a thought, a feeling, a sensation, whatever, you, you know the routine, sitting here all day, that the mind responds, reacts with unpleasant, don't want it, push it away. And these are two of the key elements of what create dukkha, it's greed and aversion, often described as flip side of the, co- of the same coin. The third aspect, what are called the three poisons, greed, aversion, and delusion, This third aspect of delusion is the reactivity that comes from our fundamental misunderstanding of who we are. What does that mean? It means we think we are a we. No, I think I am an I, right? You all think that. You're somebody. You have a name. You have a seat. It's your cushion. It's your shoes. You'd be upset if somebody else took your shoes or your seat, right? And it's this felt sense of self. And not just felt sense of self, but felt sense of solid, separate meanness that points to this third and in some ways most subtle kind of suffering, of dukkha. I talked about it a little bit in the welcome the first night, that most of us feel some sense of separation from ourselves, separation or disconnection from other people and the world, and that we uh, can begin to see and sense that more subtle level of dukkha as we begin to sit and settle on the retreat. This is, I think, what um, Coben was pointing to when he said the Dharma is what holds this teapot together, he was pointing to the truth of our deep interconnectedness. He was pointing to something very subtle that is the fabric. I'm using language here that doesn't quite work. But the fabric, what holds everything together. The fabric that actually is the truth that we aren't so separate as we feel. And of course, when we taste that, when we smell that, when we feel that, it touches something in us. So how do we practice with this? I think very useful to um, not do a kind of spiritual override and say, oh, we are all connected. Everything is one. Isn't it beautiful? Now, you could do that, but better, I would suggest, to pay attention to where you don't feel that. 
to actually notice those places where you do feel separate, where you feel your own edges, where you feel your felt sense of self. I like sense of self because the acronym is SOS, which I think is a good way of talking about it. So to start to notice those places where you feel me, I, mine. And the teaching is that as we pay attention, that is how we heal. That is how we discover that, yes, I feel separate, and it's not the whole truth. But we don't get there by jumping over by pretending, right? We get there by um, watching in a moment how we can see a sense of self arise and disappear. And it is this practice that is a practice that allows a kind of healing. By healing, I mean there's a way in which we begin to feel a sense of alignment, of unification, of wholeness. That those fragmented and disparate parts of ourselves or our felt sense of disconnection with other people and the world begins to soften. This is a natural process that happens as the heart begins to soften and open. We begin to find ourselves home. We begin to have a sense of belonging. So here's some more specific instruction about how to practice with this. Some of you may have heard this story of uh, George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver was a uh, scientist and a sort of social radical and a philosopher, and um, he was um, he was also known as a peanut farmer, kind of like Jimmy Carter. But he was responsible for coming up with hundreds of things to do with a peanut, which can be sound kind of humorous. But in fact, he used his passion for and his understanding of the biological world of the world of botany of plants and of growing things as a way to help support and ultimately liberate um, African-American farmers in the South. So he is someone who was responsible, for example, for the whole idea of crop rotation. So his um, capacity to understand the world of living things, he used for great social benefit. So this is a story about little George. And the story is that when, uh, as a little boy, uh, even then, George had this love for growing things, plants. And it's said that all of the uh, women in the neighborhood where he grew up uh, used to bring little George their ailing plants. And he would take them into his little, you know, plant hospital and um, they would get better. And at some point, one of the ladies in the neighborhood came to little George and said, so what is it, you know? What gives you such a good, great green thumb? 
What are you doing with our plants that allows them to come in looking sort of sick and wilted? Some of you may feel this way in the course of this retreat. You come in kind of wilted and tired, and you come out the other side, and wow, look what happened. Nice, robust, green plant. So uh, here's the teaching and the instruction. Like Jane Hirschfeld's seven words, this is another version of the whole teaching in a sentence. So George said to the ladies, if you listen to things and love them, if you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. If you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. This is our practice. Listening, paying attention to whatever it is that's arising. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the feeling of you know, bliss and contentment and unity, the feeling of jaggedness and separation and despair, all of it. When we bring a kind attention, when we receive our experience with these qualities of heart that allow us to be open, to be interested, to be curious, to be courageous, to be kind, with whatever it is that's arising, all of the things that come and go, this is what allows us to see clearly. And it's not even so much that we are doing something, but as we pay attention in this way, the things themselves are revealed. They do the revealing. You don't have to do the work. (laughs) So I imagine as the Buddha was sitting under the tree that this was his practice, that he sat and things were revealed to him. He listened, he paid attention, and he listened lovingly. Right? He didn't go running away when he saw <clears throat> his own suffering unfolding or the suffering of all beings unfolding. He sat and attended and paid attention with kindness, with care. He received what was revealed to him. And he saw in this ultimate display, this teaching of Pratika Samupada, which is also sometimes described as a circle, like the path is a circle, that this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, and that's how a moment of suffering unfolds. It also showed him how that suffering can be undone. But here's the thing, that we tend to pay attention to the this and the that. What we're not paying so much attention to necessarily is the connection between. What is that? I would propose to you in a word that we might call that love. And not so much love as an emotion or a feeling, but love as that connective fabric that, as Coben said it, holds everything together. 
we spend so much time in reactivity, right? In our opinions and our beliefs and our stories about how things are and how they should be, that sometimes we miss the extraordinary beauty that there's anything at all. That it's all unfolding, it's all revealing itself to you. So we can focus on the particulars of what we're seeing, but we can also begin to open and soften the heart in a way that allows us to appreciate what's here. I think it's important to recognize that we don't have to make it so. That this fabric of love, this truth of this connectivity, it's already here. It is the way it is. It is this teaching of Pratika Samupada that everything is connected. But it's subtle and it's easy to miss it. And when we practice, Andrea spoke about this last night in terms of the, the path, that the path can be described as a description of what enlightened behavior looks like. And so we practice that way of living as a way to emulate what awakening looks like. And in a similar way, when we practice, when we bring a sense of heartfulness to our mindfulness, when we bring kindness, when we bring this quality of being willing to be very close, to stay intimate and kind with our experience, we're aligning ourselves with the truth of how things are. And as we do that, as we listen and love whatever is revealed, we find a kind of happiness that comes not so much from one particular kind of experience or another, because as you've started to see, those will come and go. But we find a subtler kind of happiness that comes from being in alignment with the truth, from living and behaving as things are. Because seeing things as they are, this truth of wisdom, is also, uh, we could say it, being things as they are. It's not that the truth is out there. It's also unfolding in you and as you. And you have an opportunity to not think about that too much, not try to figure it out, but to let the words resonate to let yourself be touched, to let the heart quiver in response, and to follow that. So let's sit again for a few moments. So as you sit, just taking a moment 
to tune in to the heart. No need to change or try or effort in any way. But bringing this attitude of openness, of interest, of curiosity, of kindness and receptivity to see if you can notice and feel what's the tone of your experience. Allowing the heart to be just as it is. Trusting that as you open and receive your experience, that everything you need will be revealed. that your job is to listen and love. And once again, letting the words of the poem wash through you. Somewhere, a black bear has just risen from sleep and is staring down the mountain. All night, in the brisk and shallow restlessness of early spring, I think of her, her black fists flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire touching the grass, the cold water. There is only one question. There is only one question, how to love this world. I think of her rising like a black and leafy ledge to sharpen her claws against the silence of the trees. Whatever else my life is, with its poems and its music and its glass cities. It is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain, breathing and tasting. Whatever else my life is with its poems and its music and its glass cities, It is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain, breathing and tasting. All day, 
I think of her, her white teeth, her wordlessness, her perfect love. <laughs>